The Jewish views on German citizenship. The Brexit vote sees a sharp rise in applications from British Jews applying for ancestral visas. Walter presents. Broadcaster Walter Isolino talks about the Israeli series Beauty and the Baker. And we hear about the synagogue giving away free places for the forthcoming High Holy Days. But first, with the roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The German embassy in London has experienced a rush of British Jews applying for citizenship, apparently in the wake of the Brexit vote. About 100 applications have been received, compared to around 20 annually in previous years. A little-used law enables those who were stripped by the Nazis of their citizenship and their descendants to apply. The chief executive of the Association of Jewish Refugees, Michael Newman, said that the vote to leave the EU with the resulting uncertainty might mean some want to keep their options open and perhaps work in Germany. Donald Trump has announced that he would test would-be immigrants to the United States for any anti-Semitic beliefs as part of an extreme vetting process. The Republican presidential nominee also said Israel would be a key ally in fighting radical Islam if he won the presidency. Mr. Trump said he wanted to isolate people with extreme Islamist beliefs and those who were hostile to American society, including anti-Semites. The Jewish community has welcomed news that the Metropolitan Police is to create a new unit dedicated to fighting online racism, including anti-Semitism. The two-year project, part funded by the Home Office, is expected to cost £1.7 million and will have five officers who will filter and identify hate crimes online, including social media, and trace those posting them. Such people routinely hide their real-life identities. It's hoped to send a strong message that all forms of abuse are just as wrong online as they are in person. The government of Poland has approved a bill that would make the use of terms like Polish death camps an offence punishable by up to three years in jail. The country's justice ministry said that there are still comments made, especially in the foreign media, that suggest Poland and Poles participated in the crimes of World War II. The country fears that younger generations will incorrectly assume Polish participation in the camps. And finally, a synagogue in Middlesex is offering free seats for High Holy Day services in recognition that people are struggling in the wake of a post-Brexit economic downturn. Staines and District United Synagogue made the offer this week, which includes Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot and all Sabbaths in between. That's the news, now the sport from Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Israel have equaled their best-ever Olympics in terms of medals won after Or Sasson claimed their second bronze medal of the Games. The 25-year-old came third in the 100kg judo event, following on from Yarden Gerbi's bronze win in the 63kg event. Sasson's first victory was though shrouded in controversy after his Egyptian opponent refused to shake his hand at the end of the fight. Elsewhere in Rio, American gymnast Ali Reisman claimed her third medal of the Games, winning silver in a women's floor exercise, while Anthony Irvin became the oldest ever athlete to win a swimming gold medal, the 35-year-old finishing first in the 50-metre freestyle. And finally, with just over three weeks to go until the start of the Jewish football season, Boca Juniors have withdrawn from the league, citing a lack of numbers. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed, who stays with us and welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. As I say, Andrew Sherwood, sports and community editor, stays with us to review the paper alongside editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Richard, let's start off with the front page. And a person who you wouldn't necessarily expect to find on the front page of The Jewish News radical preacher Anjum Chowdhury. Why? Yeah, Anjum Chowdhury has an obnoxious presence, I think, for anybody who supports Israel and the Jewish community. But he's also been a quite upsetting and unpleasant presence to anybody that loves this country and appreciates freedom of speech and democracy. This is a man who has said some really vile things about many sensitive issues over the years, including drummer Lee Rigby, 7-7, Uh, All sorts of issues that I think are obviously quite sensitive. And it's uh, a very good thing that after 20 long years, this man's been on the radar for. He's finally been uh, convicted of race hate and he will be sentenced in the weeks to come. And hopefully his brand of unique hatred and verbal incitement will be something that we uh, can do well without. Now, obviously, that's a big story to come out of this week just from the national press, never mind the Jewish press's point of view. But as you quite rightly identify, there is obviously Jewish interest based on his disdain, shall we say, for Israel. Now, I would say, though, that as far as someone like Anjum Chowdhury is concerned, the problem that I think I have and so many others have is that by us talking about him is actually giving him the exposure and the the credit in some really strange way that he desires. Would you say that's a fair comment? I would say that's a fair comment and obviously what you said is correct. However, just to completely ignore him, I don't think that serves any purpose either. People want to know what they want to know, but it's it's good if people know what he said, what he's been accused of and now what he's been found guilty of. So just to keep stum, so to speak, and just ignore it completely, I don't think it's the right way either. Some of our listeners might remember a gentleman called Abu Hamza, the, the hook-handed preacher of Finsbury Park. And it's a very similar sort of case to the one uh, that we're now talking about. And of course, 10 years ago or so when he was in the limelight, and it, only recently I think he's he, he was actually convicted did now he's serving a lifetime prison in America lifetime prison sentence in America 10 or so years ago the climate the temperature was actually not as threatening and as worrying as it is today now you have obviously with ISIS and fundamentalism and extremism and all sorts of nationalist movements terrorism across France and other parts of Europe you have a, a worrying climate and temperature and I think that someone like Anjum Chowdhury if he was given free reign and was on the streets uh, inciting and provoking now it, it certainly would be even more dangerous and and add even more fuel to the fire. Certainly would. Well, speaking of other parts of Europe, let us focus our attention on another part of Europe in the form of Germany. And broke this week again, it actually even made national press that it would appear as if many members of the community are making a break for Germany if they can. They're trying to apply for German citizenship in a bid to beat Brexit. Yeah, this is certainly one of the most intriguing stories to come out of the turmoil of Britain's decision to leave the EU. In recent weeks, it has come to light that British citizens are seeking dual nationality, very simply for the reason I think that they want to have their cake and eat it, in case that in the years to come there's issues politically, socially, economically about visas, work permits, etc., when Britain suddenly one morning wakes up and finds it's no longer in Europe. So there's something that's been going on at the German embassy in London in the last couple of weeks, whereby descendants of people that were removed from Germany between 1933 and 1945 under Hitler's Nazi regime, their descendants can now 
legally apply legitimately for German citizenship. And obviously, you'd have your foot in both camps. You'd be able to enjoy the benefits outside the EU in, in Britain and also be a member of the EU if you were going to have dual nationality. And you can have dual nationality here in the UK. You can be domiciled here in the UK while still actually qualifying for German citizenship. And they've received, the German government, German embassy in London have received 100 notices of interest in applying for this. Usually they get 20 a year. They've had 100 since the end of June. Does this not beg the question, though, that this might just be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, don't you think? I mean, we haven't actually left the European Union yet. I appreciate that it is on the cards and it may only be a couple of years away. But at the same time, it just seems a bit, well, I suppose, almost, as I say, knee-jerk reaction, does it not, to try and go and start applying for a whole lot of German citizenship that may or may not even be relevant based on heritage? There's a lot of panic, a lot of confusion. I think a lot of people are very bewildered. I don't think anybody really in their heart of hearts, whether you were Boris Johnson or anybody else on the uh, exit side of the debate, that truly, really thought that they were going to actually win this thing. But that's what's happened. Suddenly, Britain finds itself in a position that it cannot predict the outcome of. And you're right, it's it's panic. I don't think anybody is going to start packing their bags and moving and swapping central London for Cologne anytime soon. I don't think anyone's actually going to move to Germany it's simply, as I said, it's, it's have your cake and eat it. It's an insurance policy more than anything else. Well, let's see what happens in the coming weeks, I guess, as ever. But something we don't have to wait a couple of weeks for to see what happens is the Olympics. And apart from Team GB doing rather splendidly, there is unfortunately a little bit of, well, a, I suppose, tainted outlook by the sense that some Israeli athletes, or at least one in particular Israeli athlete, has been ignored, shall we say, And it doesn't seem very in the spirit of things, does it, Andrew, when an Egyptian athlete refused to shake hands? Well, that's what I was going to say, Phil. I mean, first of all, it's not in the Olympic spirit at all, if everything the Olympics stands for. What you're talking about is something I touched upon in the bulletin earlier. Osasson, the Israeli judoka, he's obviously gone on to win bronze. But his first fight was shrouded in controversy after his Egyptian opponent, Islam el-Shahabi, refused to shake hands with him afterwards. Now, as you can imagine, that caused worldwide headlines, outrage, and rightly so. In the aftermath, the International Olympic Committee have been investigating and the Egyptian Olympic Committee have actually sent him home for his actions or lack of actions. And so this means that he will be prevented from taking part in the rest of the Olympics now? Well, by virtue of him, he obviously lost to the Israeli on Friday. So by virtue of him losing that, he was out of the competition anyway. I have to say, I was watching it as it happened. And the first thing that came into my mind, an Egyptian fighting an Israeli. Because normally they kind of boycott the events before it happens, as we've already seen earlier in the games. So the fact it went on at all was a bit surprising. Obviously the Israeli won, and then as they both go off, they go to bow to each other, Sasson offered his hand and the Egyptian refused it. But we do have to offer the interest of fairness. Could he have missed it? Could he have turned away? Was there any chance that maybe he didn't he, see that he was Sasson holding his hand? actually went onto the mats with the, with the umpire, the referee, and the Egyptian just stood there. Yeah, the sporting occasions are steeped in tradition and respect for your opponent. And I think martial arts, more than any other, the the routine, whether it's uh, Taekwondo or any of the other arts you came to care to mention, it's all or about... you in your yellow belt? Oh, yes, you remember last week, and I'm so glad that you mentioned it. Thank you, because I wasn't going to. Um, <laughs> I would have had you in a headlock had you not, though. Oh. Uh, but yes, I was a yellow belt Dan 1. 
So yes, I was something of a lethal weapon when I was eight. Well, anyway, I noticed you wouldn't dare tackle Clive. It was you had to wait until I returned this week before you'd even I have think of far too that. much reverence for that, that great broadcaster. Anyway, um, I digress. <laughs> so yeah, there's obviously a lot of respect and honour and tradition in the martial arts, and and clearly it wasn't a case of oh, I didn't see your hand there. The hand I think was over and above what should have been the bow after that. And neither of those took place. It's it's a shame. You'd have thought in in the in the arena of the Olympics, in the arena of sport, this would be a place where Israel and and its political adversaries, shall we say, would find a, a modicum of mutual respect. It's such a shame that this is being played out on a on a worldwide level. It's an old adage that sport and politics shouldn't mix, and once more, we have actually seen the mix. And what was particularly interesting about London 2012, if we look back to that, is it did feel as if for a brief moment that there was absolutely nothing in the way of politics to come between anyone. The spirit of the Games, certainly in London more than ever, I think that we can all agree, really did override and almost for a moment made us forget our political differences. But it does seem a shame that for Rio 2016, four years later, that we seem to be going backwards rather than forwards. Now, of course, there was some other news that you touched upon as far as the Rio games were concerned. And what else has occurred? Well, first of all, I would like to point out that as we currently stand, this is Israel's joint best ever showing at games with two medals. They've only ever won two medals at any particular games so we have Orsasson we have Yardi Gerbin who won the also in judo bronze medals so yes yeah, so far it's so good and obviously we spoke to the head of the Israeli Olympic delegation before they flew out to the games I said to him what's your aims what's your targets he said one medal will be satisfactory so everyone's happy You're listening to The Jewish Views. That's where we have to leave it for the pay-per-review for this week. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've been hearing, there's been a sharp rise in the number of British Jews applying for German citizenship since the UK voted to leave the European Union. Among those applicants was journalist and author Thomas Harding, famed, of course, for his works including Hans and Rudolf and The House by the Lake. I've been speaking to Thomas to find out why he decided to take such steps, and I started by asking him to tell us about his German roots. My great-grandfather was Alfred Alexander. He was a prominent Berlin doctor in the 1920s and 30s. His clients included our Einstein, Marlene Dietrich, Max Reinhardt from the Deutsche Theater. And so um, the Alexanders had this wonderful, very uh, bourgeois life in Berlin. And they had this huge, huge apartment, 22 rooms. They had a maid and a chauffeur. They even had something to wind up the clocks. And they also had this lovely lake house just outside of Berlin. They were having a, a wonderful time. They considered themselves Germans. He, uh, Dr. Alfred Alexander, served in the First World War. In fact, he um, got an Iron Cross first class from the Germans, and, and he considered himself German. Um, that was until, of course, the rise of National Socialism in the 1930s. So, well, obviously, what with the rise of National Socialism, one would assume that, like with so many other families, they were either forced to leave or, regrettably, maybe some of your family didn't survive. What, what did happen? So in the 1930s, my grandmother was forced out of university. She was studying journalism. My uncles were forced out of school. My great-grandfather lost his business. The Nazis stole the property. They stole the business. And they were forced to flee Berlin. And they arrived in London 1935 and 1936. Five members of the family weren't able to make it. And they were murdered in the Holocaust in Riga and Auschwitz. 
And the family members who arrived in Britain were incredibly grateful to Britain and tried to, you know, assimilate as German Jews, like so many German Jews and Austrian Jews in, in, in Britain, and took part in the war effort, uh, volunteered for the army, and tried to, you know, contribute to, to Britain as much as they could. Okay, well, let's move on several generations to the this day and age where obviously your family are well established now in the UK. And does this mean now that because of the vote of Brexit, are you one of the people who has maybe applied to the German embassy requesting the possible chance of reclaiming German citizenship that was obviously so cruelly denied from your ancestors? Yes. Yeah, so when I was listening to the to the Brexit vote overnight, like so many other people, I was increasingly depressed about the result. And I think it was announced around six or seven o'clock in the morning. And at nine o'clock, I wrote to the German embassy in London. I said, listen, I'd, I'd like to have my citizenship restored according to the basic law, which is the German constitution from 1949. Anybody who has lost their citizenship through national socialism, mostly Jews, but others as well, actually have a right to have their citizenship restored. And it's quite an easy process. You just have to prove various you know, birth certificates and so on, marriage licenses. And so I wrote to them and I've been working with a German lawyer now to kind of make my application, which will be submitted in the next few weeks. Why does it mean so much to you if you are British through and through, as it were? Well, I mean, there's a practical part of it, which is, as a result of Brexit, it is likely that I will lose and my daughter will lose the ability to travel and work in 27 countries of Europe. And that feels like a real loss to me. I feel European. And while I'm incredibly grateful to Britain, in fact, 50 years after our family arrived in Britain, they threw a um, thank you Britain party and they, they, they kind of toasted the Queen and, and they dressed up and they had Union Junk bunting and so on. So the family is incredibly grateful to Britain. But at the same time, personally, it feels like a real loss to me, the Brexit vote. And what's interesting is I don't have to make a choice between one or the other. I can keep my British citizenship and also keep my options open. But more than that, over the last three or four years, I've been working on a project in Germany which involves the the saving of the family house, this lake house that my great-grandfather built. And I've been working with the local residents of a village to turn the property into a public space where education and reconciliation can happen. And through that process, I've, I've forged extraordinary relationships with some of these people. It's really, I've been incredibly impressed by how open-hearted they are. And, and it started really because they were doing research on what happened to the Jewish population of the village. Over 25% of the residents were Jewish, and they wanted to know what happened to them. And because of their endeavors and their brutal honesty about the history and, and acknowledging what happened in the past, that I think opened the door for me. If I hadn't had that foundation of truth, I don't think I could have really even considered forging these relationships. But it happened, and it's, it's been remarkable. And it was because of, of their research and then working with them that I was, you know, uh, that I, along with my rest of my family members and the people in the village, we've been able to save the house, you know, by basically proving that the house has merit historically and culturally. As a result of two years of research, I wrote this book, House by the Lake, and that was really the culmination of my attempt to prove that the house has value. And, and as a result of that, we've got monument status. It's like being on the list of important or historic buildings. In Germany, they call it a Denkmal, a monument. And we've been able to save the house. And, and, and now our plan is to turn it into a center for education and reconciliation. And, and then I think the last thing is, is, is I've just been overwhelmed by the decision of the German people to take in over a million refugees. You know, my family were refugees. Britain was incredibly generous 
to take us in and we were very grateful and now we see Germany taking in over a million refugees and nine of them happen to be members of my family. Remarkably, my sister married a Syrian Kurd over 20 years ago and nine of her nephews and nieces have just arrived from Damascus in Germany, including Berlin. And so now you know, we were refugees who left Germany, but we're also refugees who are returning. And so I feel very connected to Germany and its history. And I, I don't want to, um, uh, at the same time, I'm not saying goodbye to Britain, but I am saying hello to Europe. So, you know, it's very important to me that I stay part of, you know, this, this project and this, uh, this, this European endeavor. Well, it's all very admirable. But the problem is, and the truth is of the matter, that none of us as it stands, know exactly what Brexit means. So could this not just be, like so many others, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction? It's a phrase I used earlier on in this very programme. But is it just a case of, oh, I don't know if I can chance what's going to happen. I've got to do something now. Or are you genuinely concerned? It's not not a knee-jerk reaction for me for two reasons. One is because there is a very real possibility that we will lose the ability to work and travel around Europe. We don't know yet, you're right. Certainly there's going to be some kind of significant change. That's what people voted for. I didn't agree with it, but that's what people voted for. But for me, more importantly, I've come to a stage where I actually want to have my German citizenship restored. I I, I am connected to to Germany. So fundamentally, it's a matter, it's a practical matter. That's why I took the decision to contact the embassy. But it's also a very emotional matter. It's about reconciliation. It's about acknowledging the past, but also saying, let's do something together in the future. Let's build a better future together. How familiar are you with German Jewry? In the sense that I don't just mean your ancestors. I mean, do you know what life is like in Germany now for the Jewish community over there? Because let's face it, it was obviously incredibly different 70 odd years ago. So how familiar are you with it now? The project that I'm talking about is actually we're working with there was a federal Jewish scholarship program, a Jewish scholarship program, and they're one of our partners. And we're also working with a Muslim scholarship program. And I was at the house and we announced these partnerships with the city of Potsdam and the state of Brandenburg. And we planted a cherry tree because we used to have cherry trees. The family had cherry trees at the house. And my uncles and aunts used to have competitions who could have the most cherries and who could spit the cherry stone the most, you know, the furthest. And, and we planted a cherry tree and uh, a rabbi was there from Berlin who blessed the cherry tree. And, you know, there is a, a, a growing German Jewish population. There's been a large influx from Eastern Europe and Russia. There's also um, tens of thousands of Israeli Jews who have arrived in the last, arrived in the last 10 years. So it's, it's certainly a, a burgeoning culture. And recently I visited the synagogue where my great uncles had their bar mitzvah in 1930. And they started doing services again at, at the uh, synagogue. And you know, I found it very moving standing in the balcony and looking over where they used to, you know, they read from the Torah. And, you know, there is a sense of a, a growing community and it's flourishing and it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. And yes, there's, there is anti-Semitism in Germany, but I would, I, would, I would say it's probably not as virulent as it is in Britain. They're so conscious and so aware. There have been cases over the, you know, the years of neo-Nazis, especially in, in you know, some of the um, states like Brandenburg and so on and Saxony. But it, it, actually, the, I would say the Islamophobia is much more of a concern right now in Germany. And um, I think one of the reasons that Angela Merkel and the, and the government is have to have, be so admired is because they knew that it was going to be politically difficult for them to welcome over a million refugees, most of whom would be Muslim. But they took the decision anyway because it was the right thing to do, like the British took in the kinder transport, like the Americans took in so many people after the war. Now, they could have 
taken in so many more. And I think Germany has learned that lesson. And I think that's incredibly impressive. Journalist and author Thomas Harding talking to me there about applying for German citizenship following the UK's decision to leave the European Union. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Kate will be joined by children's author Joe Craig and newcomer lawyer Denise Lester. They'll be discussing the relationship between Europe and Jews. Plus, Clive will also be talking to Hilary Stone, the chairman of Staines and District United Synagogue, about why they will be giving out free places to this year's High Holy Days services. But first, when you think of foreign language dramas, it's fair to say that normally the most adventurous we get in the UK is action imports from America. Well, Walter Isolino has decided to change all that, and his current Channel 4 series, Walter Presents, sees an array of different foreign language dramas broadcast right here on our very own British screens. His latest screening just happens to be one of Israel's most successful entertainment exports for a very long time, Beauty and the Baker. Now, I'm not going to give too much away because entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Walter himself to find out more. She started by asking him, how did he first get into his love of foreign language dramas? Foreign language drama has always been a complete obsession and a passion of mine, really, because when you, I was raised in Italy for the first 20-something years of my life, and, and in Italy, television is dubbed, which is a terrible thing because it means that every actor speaks with the same voice. So whether you're Miss Marple or Angelina Jolie, actually, you speak with the same voice. But the advantage of that is that as a viewer, you are exposed from a very early age, really, to drama from all over the world. There's no such thing as Italian drama versus American drama versus French drama. So on a Monday, you'll watch an Italian show, like a mafia show show on Tuesday the sort of Desperate Housewives on Wednesday there's going to be a German cop show and Italians perceive them all as global shows so when I moved here 20 years ago I was quite surprised by the lack of texture and variety most drama here was really English and American and and, and it's only some kind of fairly niche cinema club fairly elitist curzony type world that brought foreign cinema to the UK but foreign drama was not quite there and so it was my dream to try and um, do something about it. And when you when you think about when we think about foreign drama, we do tend to pigeonhole it. You think American is kind of it may be very action or a bit slapstick, and their humour is someone falling over. And French, you don't quite always think you've got it because of something elusive. How do you perceive the different countries' drama? I would say that quite a lot has changed in the past few years. I think in the past five years, there really has been a revolution, and, and drama has never been better, stronger, or more sophisticated than it is today. And what it means is that a global language of exceptional drama has evolved, partly as a result of great, great American pieces like Homeland, Mad Men, House of Cards, A Better Call Saul, you name it. So the big American HBO, Showtime, AMC, and indeed Netflix-type network have created the myth of extraordinary serialized drama where great writers and great directors and, and great actors indeed participate in a way that only a few years ago they wouldn't have. It would, there, would, there would have been a stigma whereby a sort of top actor would have done Hollywood movies and they wouldn't have dreamed of appearing on a Netflix show. And now that movies have become very much 
sort of action-based Godzilla CGI type to 3D type fare and a bit more Xboxy that they sell games effectively. I think great craft has migrated onto drama. Now, America sort of led, but Scandinavia followed. And I think that over the past three or four years, most producers internationally have realized that there is such a thing as a global language for international drama. And by language, I mean global grammar. So it's sort of serialized, six to 12 parts with a heavy, interesting arc driven by action and character. And so in a way, I think that particularly when it comes to a drama, whether it's family drama, kitchen sink, whether it's thrillers, I think that the standard around the world has risen incredibly. Yes, of course, as you say, comedy can be slightly different and there's a slight tonal shift in the way people do comedies. But I mean, you know, Beauty and the Baker is an example of how you can create an exceptionally great, fantastic comedy, which could not have been better if it had been made in Hollywood, to be honest. So, well, you mentioned Beauty and the Baker, and that's one of the things we wanted to to, to hear about. That's an Israeli-generated production. Yes, and I've got to say I've been I've always been an enormous fan of Israeli drama. I think it is exceptional. I mean, I watched thousands of hours of drama over the past few years, and and so and you find excellence everywhere. That is the truth. Every country excels in something, and they do it in their own peculiar way. But I think that Israeli drama is particularly terse and crisp and and beautifully written, and uh, and it's very taut. I really like it. But what surprised me, and I'd watched a lot of it. I mean, I'd watched obviously Prisoners of War, but but I watched other pieces. Um, there's a piece that I really like called False Flag. There's a piece called uh, the original. I think was called The Gordon Cell, which I absolutely loved. And and, and I've seen Mossad, so I've seen a lot of pieces, but but I didn't expect a comedy. I was prepared, in a, in a stupid way probably, generalizing, but I was putting Israeli serial drama under the kind of political thriller arena, and I didn't expect an incredibly vibrant, colorful, fun, sexy piece like this. So when I found it, I fell in love with it in a nanosecond. And is it, as you say, in, in many parts... It's the first series is in 10 parts and the second series is just shooting now. They're finishing filming the last episode now. And it's been one of the biggest ever comedy dramas in Israel. And it grew and grew and grew to the point where the last few apps had something like over 50% of the audience nationally, which is extraordinary. Wow, that is... So it sounds like a play on Beauty and the Beast. I thought you were going to say something like that. (laughs) Without giving anything away, of course, can you tell us sort of top line what it's about? Yeah, of course. It's a very simple but very lovely and quite incisive love story. So it's basically a young penniless baker without a penny to his name. He works for the family business making pita bread and he falls in love with a multi-millionaire global star supermodel. And the question is, can two people that are so different ever have a successful relationship, considering that uh, her agent really wants him to split up because she wants her to concentrate on work. And Amos has a former girlfriend who also wants him to split up. So it's sort of, it's a Romeo and Juliet comedy romance with will they, won't they, because a lot of people want them to fail. But but the leading characters are so lovely and strong and crisply written. You will fall in love with them. It's, in, it's irresistible. It's impossible Can't to stop wait. watching. Can't wait. When's it going to be on? It's going to be on Tuesday, the 23rd uh, at 10 o'clock on Channel 4. And it's something to be very proud of because I think that, again, Channel 4 uh, have sort of led the way. I mean, you know, BBC did great with the Scandi thrillers, but but I think the range and diversity of what we are putting out with Channel 4 is much bolder. Who would dare to put out a sexy, funky, half-hour comedy from Israel? It's such an unexpected proposition. And yet they're doing it. They're giving it, giving it a fantastic and very well-deserved primetime slot. And then straight after the premiere of episode one, the entire series is fully available on all four online on the Walter Presents service. 
That's that's fabulous. And how are we dealing with the language issue there? We're just the usual subtitles. We're not the dubbing. usual subtitles. Yeah, but we know, but we care very much about that because because subtitling is really an art and it's like a layer of direction. And so what we do is with every drama we buy, this included, we strip off all the original ones and we redo them. And we commissioned a great company that works with all the top film festivals, Venice. Because humour must be hard to translate. Yes, quite difficult. But, you know, but, but, I'm, but I'm sure hugely enjoyable. It's what they do. And, and I got to say for me, and I hope for viewers, watching something in their original language is so exquisite. I would never, ever want it dubbed. No, you want to hear their voices, even if you don't understand it. You can get the totally. tone. The but tone. I would say, imagine, this has been such an enormous success, this piece, that it's been, not only has it sold around the world, but other countries have started to make their own versions. So I'm reliably informed that there is a Beauty and the Baker being made in Russia now and one <laughs> being made in Holland. And I'm sure many more will follow. Oh. But I wanted the original and the best. Absolutely. That's great. How do you find time to listen to all these things? Watch all these programmes, <laughs> I should say. My life is just watching telly from um, 8.30. There been many who'd envy you, Walter. And some of the, some of the programmes must be sort of more difficult to, to place or to source. When you think of, I don't know, dramas from India, say, they, they must be quite sort of culturally specific. Yes, they are. That's a very, very good question. And in fairness, I would say we've launched in January. The, the service has been a tremendous success, actually. So far, we've had more than 13 million streams on the service, which is a record for us. And so viewers are gobbling it up and they're loving it. However, we made a conscious decision at the beginning to launch the service with a range of dramas that would be, I would say, they're not only European because we have a lot of Argentinian, Chilean, Mexican, Latin American, but they would be Anglo-American in tone and style. So the grammar is very much that of a great HBO or Netflix show and Beauty and the Maker is no exception and with with pieces like um, Asian pieces or pieces from India we are slowly going to be introducing them as of next year because we wanted to warm up the audience purely because sometimes the visual and the storytelling grammar is quite different and it takes quite a bit of a leap and so our aim was to make a broad mainstream audience uh, very well versed and very familiar with this content and then gradually introduce pieces as stretched that, that can stretch their sort of understanding of storytelling. Particularly I'm referring to really sort of Chinese and Japanese and Korean drama. There are some beautiful pieces but but they are quite different tonally and so I think that we need uh, to be introduced to them bit by bit. Yes, we need to. We do need to get used to it, like like we do with the Danish Danish Absolutely. dramas that, that took the world by storm. Well, we're very much looking forward to this. So remind us how we can watch it. So you can watch the show next Tuesday, the 23rd, on Channel 4 at 10 o'clock. That's the official national premiere uh, on mainstream Channel 4. And then straight after the transmission of the first episode, it's all available on all four, which the Channel 4 um, digital platform, and it's all available like Netflix. So all the apps are there for you to binge on. Walter Isolino talking to Kate Fulton there about his latest foreign language drama, Import, Israel's very own Beauty and the Baker. And you can see that on Channel 4 on Tuesday the 23rd of August at 10pm. Or failing that, you can always watch it on demand on all four following its premiere on the aforementioned date. Simply go to channel4.com forward slash all four. And that's numeric four. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. 
Now, when it comes to shul attendance, there is something in the way of a divide between the community. From those who attend weekly, there are those who maybe go twice yearly. You know who you are. And of course, there are those who don't go at all. Here's a question for you. Would you be tempted to go to synagogue more often if you didn't have to pay membership fees? Well, Staines and District United Synagogue are giving people the chance to attend their forthcoming High Holy Day service for free. Fascinating idea, this one. And Clive Roslin has been finding out more about it by speaking to their chairman, Hilary Stone. Hilary Stone, it's a, it's a lovely idea, asking people to come free to Staines Synagogue for the new year and the Day of Atonement. But wouldn't it make more sense to invite people for Shabbat? That invitation is included. Anyone who wishes to come to us on Shabbat will be more than welcome. They will find a very friendly atmosphere in a very delightful area. They may even decide when they come that they would like to live in an area which has far cheaper housing than in northwest London, which is right next to the River Thames. It's very beautiful, nearish, as far as Rosh Hashanah is concerned, it's the nearest place for Tashlich. And being a small community, we are like a family. Our minister, Reverend David Kale, is extremely popular. His services are easy to follow. And what's most interesting is that we are the nearest shul to Heathrow Airport. So consequently, it is a good place to find employment. So you're also saying that if you if you Going off on holiday immediately after the Rosh Hashanah, you can go straight on to Heathrow Airport. Absolutely. And quite often we get telephone calls from people saying, I'm Shoma Shabbat. Is there anywhere I can stay near your shul? Because we, we've got a stopover. We're going from one continent to another and we're going to be at Heathrow. Can we please come to a service? Shemei Shabbat was the one thing I was going to ask you about because what you're doing is, I thought inviting an awful lot of people to break all the rules and you're a united synagogue. I cannot deny that if anybody does do travelling on Shabbos and Yontav, they are breaking the rules. But there are a lot of people who do not normally come to shul, who maybe are not members of shuls, and who consider themselves not particularly orthodox, but would like to go to an orthodox shul, a traditional shul over the Yontovim, or indeed during a Shabbat. And so consequently, they will receive a warm welcome in Staines. I mean, we are non-judgmental. Yes, we are an orthodox synagogue. But what's important to us is that people come and join us. And in fact, we have to realise that in the real world, particularly in an area which is outside of northwest London, not everybody finds it possible to follow all the rules. There are a number of communities where they are spread out like ours, and consequently it is the way of the world that when one is outside the main hub of, of the Jewish community, then people have to get to show the way they can because otherwise this small community such as ours anything outside northwest london would simply not exist is it mainly because you think that people should go more to synagogue and this is one way of doing it and you think they may not go because they have to pay to go to synagogue if they become members or is it because stains is getting smaller and smaller and smaller all the time and you're hoping for new members of course 
we hope for new members. Yes, we are an ageing community and we're a small community. But that has the advantages that we all know each other, we all care about each other. It's very warm and it's very friendly. And we have a lovely kiddish after all our services, including after service at Rosh Hashanah, both days, and at the end of Yom Kippur, tea and cake is served to break the fast. Oh, brilliant. But if these people want to come, how do they get about coming? I mean, do they have to let you know they're coming or do they just roll up? Well, obviously, security being as it is at the moment, we would rather they contact us. We have a website, Stain Synagogue, and indeed, we, if they want to send us an email on stains.synagogue at btinternet.com, we will be pleased to get in touch with them. They just need to give us their details and we will get back to them. I have to ask you another question. You're chairman of the synagogue. I am indeed. That's something new in, in an orthodox synagogue, isn't it? Well, this is very interesting because I became chairman in all but name in 2008. Oh, as long ago as that? Yes, but I, had to, but I had to use the title of vice chairman until about three or four years ago when the US allowed women to be chairman. In actual fact, it was very, I'm afraid it was very reminiscent of the old days of the jockey club when the, the name of the stable was put, in the, it was put into the name of the male head groom as opposed to the female trainer. Well, I wish you all the very best of success and I'm sure there'll be lots of people who will enjoy staying in synagogue next Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Clive. Hilary Stone, Chairman of Staines and District United Synagogue, talking to me there about why they're giving people the chance to attend their high holiday services for free. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Kate Fulton and me today are children's author Joe Craig and newcomer lawyer Denise Lester. The subject today is based on what we've been hearing throughout this show. This week, we learned of a sharp rise in the number of applications to the German embassy here in London from British Jews applying for ancestral visas following the UK's decision to leave the European Union. The question is, how do we see the relationship between Jews and Europe? Joe, let's start with you. How do you see the relationship between Jews and Europe? I think, apart from a, a pretty major blip in the first half of the 20th century, uh, <laughs> Europe has been a home to the Jews and a place where Jews have largely been able to, to thrive. And I'm including Great Britain in that. Obviously, London is a major centre of Jewish cultural and religious life. And Jews being able to move around Europe and moving through different European centres I think is one of the major reasons behind that, major reasons why we've flourished in Europe perhaps more than in other parts of the world. So do you think we're going to lose a lot of the fine, formerly German-Jewish members of this country to Germany now? Because it, it doesn't sound like it's major numbers. It sounds like it's a major increase in what it was before, but it was quite small numbers before. And I think now people of all religions are looking for reasons and connections to get to Europe so they can stay in the European Union. And Jews, whose ancestral background is German, 
have found this lovely little loophole to, to enable them to make that connection and get back to Germany. So former Spanish Jews can do that, but former French Jews aren't doing it. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know whether there's the same rule applies to former French Jews who can go back to France, but I also think there's a different image to the current climate in France seems less welcoming. That's what we read about anyway. That's what we see on the news. So going back to France might not seem quite as enticing as going back to Germany, which I think at the moment... I think the um, relationship between the Jews and Europe is a much more complex one. I think it's bound up in our identity and our sense of a long history of being nomads, if you like. And I think that there is, with the opening up of Europe post-World War II and the EC, a real desire for Jews throughout Europe to retrace their ancestral roots. So if one looks, for example, at the uh, migrational trends in, you know, the pogroms coming in, and, and certainly with reference to my own family, who are Lithuanian, formerly Russian and Polish, There's a search for one's identity. So it's not just bound up, say, for example, in a tactical move to gain a passport or or stay in in the EC, but more complex. There are tours, for example, to Prague, to Poland, the Sephardi tour around Spain, and people are searching out their, their, their roots. It's very interesting you say that because, in fact... Prague, the Jewish community has gone down to about three, I think, which shows that people who who originate or who ancestors were Czech are not interested in going back to live in Czech Republic. You say that, but certainly I was in Prague less than five years ago and I was fortunate enough that they let me into the community centre there. And aside from the, if you like, historic tourism, I mean, one can call it Holocaust tourism, which could be controversial in itself, there was actually a community centre and there were people eating and I joined them to eat because I wanted to actually partake in what I thought was an authentic sense of the community. So there may be a transience in terms of Jewish people going through Prague and maybe not wanting to stay, but then you have other centres such as Krakow, where particularly where there's... Stop, I'm sorry to in, interrupt you, mm. but in Krakow, it's like being in a in a Walt Disney cartoon place because Krakow is the place where there is a kosher butcher run by a non-Jew. There is uh, all sorts of very Jewish things go a kosher restaurant, and they are all there to show where all the Jews once did things. It's a it's it's a pantomime. I'm going to counter you with that because I've spent some um, time over two consecutive, well, two summers going into the um, Klezmer Fest and the JCC, which is absolutely buoyant. And there's not enough publicity in this country. There is a genuine Jewish community there. It's small. It may be Chabad run. There is a thriving Orthodox shul and there's a reform shul. And yes, there is the faux Jewish industry in terms of the Jewish restaurants, which may or may not be gluck kosher, but there are there, there is access to kosher restaurants. There's certainly the um, week-long culture fest and then you have the klezmer fest on the culmination of that that's sort of late june early july where you can have many thousand people in the kazimersh square 
including Poles who are also searching their identity. Just getting back to where we started, which was about passports. I mean, we've got to separate anti-Semitism from maybe a Brexit anxiety. So I'm, I'm more I'm more thinking at the moment that Brexit anxiety will be leading people to trace their roots and suddenly become terribly interested in their historical background that maybe they weren't before and start getting passports. In fact, myself, we, was look, we were looking to see whether we could get Polish or even Belgian passports for the family just in case. I mean, it was just a passing thought, just an interest when I, when I was reading about it recently. And then you've got the other side of it, which is people are leaving or wanting other passports because they feel anxious. But I think those people are more likely to leave Europe completely. And I think there is that much of a distinction between Germany, France, Poland, what other countries. They're more likely to go to Israel. So I'm wondering how many Jews are going to get European passports specifically for just because they can rather than because they feel any anti-Semitic anxiety. Before Brexit... There were a huge number, and I mean that when I say huge, huge number of French Jews coming to live in this country. And strangely enough, there's still as many French Jews coming to live in England rather than Israel or anywhere else in Europe. Yes, that's true. There were quite a lot of quite a lot of Jews, but there were also even more going to Israel. I mean, they, you know, you just have to go to Tel Aviv at the moment at the hotels that their second language is is, uh, is French. Uh, French, and all the all the notices telling you when the services are in the hotels or where to go is French, and they they're trying to get people to who work in the hotels who who speak French. So you think even the synagogues will be will be praying in French? They se- <laughs> they seem to be, but actually there's a lot more Sephardi minyanim than there are Ashkenazi because because of so many of the French are Sephardi. But I'd, I'd like to come in and say I went to Paris two weeks ago and I saw very proud Jews, modern and those who are more orthodox, who are living and working in France, who are not leaving. And I stayed in a hotel near the Marais district. The synagogue is active. I was there last year. And there are people who are loud and proud to be Jewish in Paris. And I think that the media has a lot to answer for in terms of engendering fear and saying one should go off to Israel or one should come to London There are people who feel that their national identity and their identity and their contribution and their ability to work is in their country, their their, their national country. And it's not a flight situation for, for them. And, you know, I've had direct conversations with French Jews and I've also seen people wearing mug and dovids in the, in, the, in the countryside as well in southern France. So the, there is a Jewish community that's strong, I would say, as well, and resilient. So what you're actually saying is a lot of reasons why many English Jews are going back to their German roots is because Germany, before the Holocaust, Germany was, in fact, probably the most Jewish country in Europe. There there were many, many Jews there who felt terribly loyal to Germany. And you're saying it's the same feeling. Um, Well, I I think so. I think that being Jewish, as I said earlier, is is quite complex because there is the propaganda notion that there's a fear factor in terms of the far right, but people do want to actually still stay in Europe and be it migrationally work within Europe. 
and particular reference to the German community, of course, there was the high culture and contribution that was made by the Germans. I mean, the reform movement in this country originated from the German community. There are people that have a great contribution ancestrally and want to go back. You have all the um, reclamation of land in terms that was was taken away from families. And there are people who want to be able to touch into their German identity. And there are burgeoning German Jewish communities in Germany as well. I take a slightly different angle on this, which is that the comparison between Germany and France isn't really one to be looked at through a religious prism. I think it's more to do with the practicalities. And it's an unfair comparison, really, because the huge numbers of Jews who would have come over to England, fled to England from Germany in the 30s and... Because they were forced to. Yeah, because they were forced to, is sort of a single event of mass migration, which isn't really... There's nothing in French Jewish history to compare to it. French Jews would have come to England spread out over many centuries. There was mass migration centuries before that. So British Jews who can trace their ancestry back to France are many fewer, and also the ancestry will be further back, probably. Yeah, but the French Jews who are coming here now are coming here because there's a great deal of anti-Semitism in France at the moment. Yeah, they're coming here because Britain is still a wonderful place to live, and for many it will be a preferable journey and preferable destination to Israel. If you could, going back to where we started, would you get a European passport now? If you could trace ancestors... I looked into it. Well, my initial response, my knee joke response, was to look into getting an Irish passport because. Well, so um, many have done. That's. Particularly because the Irish tax laws are so good to writers. So it would have been wonderful. All self interesting. And and that still may be a possibility. And for me, like Denise, it would be a Lithuanian connection. I looked into it years ago because I wanted to write the Lithuanian entry in the Eurovision Song Contest. So, oh, wow. Because the law, the, wow. The, the, and then the you'd rules, have to be a Lithuanian well, citizen. Well, the rules governing British, the British entry were ridiculous. Are so there I any words? Into, you know, it's funny you ask that. <laughs> this, is, this is irrelevant, but I'm currently working with a Lithuanian pop star who has done Fabulous. the Lithuanian song card, uh, Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> and write English words for him. So at some point I may in have been going there. In English? I'm doing English words to previously Lithuanian songs. All oh, right. And he, Latvian and Lithuanian. So, that, yeah. That's what you really should be doing there. You should be learning Lithuanian. I should be learning Latvian, should be learning Russian, should be learning... Well, we should all speak more languages. I'm not particularly talented <laughs> at learning languages. And I think Brits generally have been quite lazy, you know, traditionally, at learning other languages because we're so lucky that English is spoken... Well, English is the international language now, so yeah. you can speak English anywhere. And, and foreign languages are taught mm-hmm. so poorly in our schools as well, so... That doesn't help us. I mean, it's interesting. Joe's a musician, and and I think that music transcends it transcends everything. And there's such a rich cultural heritage of, of Jewish music. I mean, there's the Landino music in in Spain, and and if people are interested in different musical genres, you know, you have the great German, great French Jewish composers, for example. And they have an ancestral history. It may provide a route where they want to go off and apply for a passport because mm. they feel that there is some form of cultural connection or, or way that that route that they want to explore. So it's quite a thought. If you're, as most Jewish people are, descended from people who are met from many different nations, are you going to have a passport? Joe, for example, is he going to have a passport for, from Ireland, from Lithuania, from Russia? It's turning into the day of the jackal. You just take out which one suits you. I think this, there's something of a sort of post-Brexit discovery of roots, which Denise touched on and Kate touched on. And it's really 
it's an advantage that Jews have. Finally, our history has given us some kind of advantage mm. that we have heritage from all over the world. And if we want to move away, we can look into getting passports from other more countries. More serious than that, are you saying really that people are frightened? And it's already been shown since Brexit happened that there's been a sort of anti-racial feeling in this country. Is it because in the back of one's mind, people are thinking, uh-oh, they're going to start being very anti-racial in this country? I think it's more likely to be economic. That almost starts us off on another long discussion. <laughs> Absolutely. Unfortunately, our time is up, so there we'll have to leave it. But thank you all very much indeed. Thanks to our guests, children's author Joe Craig and lawyer Denise Lester. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to Facebook dot com slash Jewish Views or on Twitter we are at Jewish Views UK. Well it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Romain from Maidenhead Reform Synagogue. By now you are either utterly enthralled by the Rio Olympics or totally bored by it all and can't understand what on earth the fuss is all about. Still, I don't know about you, but it's made me think a lot more about what happened in our own backyard in London 2012, especially that slogan, I don't know if you remember it, inspire a generation. Now, you know, I think that actually worked, inspire a generation, and on three levels. First, on the track, we were able to gaze upon real heroes. In other words, not the usual vacuous, self-infatuated celebrities who dominate the TV channels, people who are famous not for actually achieving anything, but just famous for being famous. Whereas suddenly, the nation's eyes were opened up to a whole new group of people, who not only won medals for achievements, but, and this is much more important, were also modest and friendly, and had worked enormously long and hard, really hard, to get where they were. Second, the Paralympics were equally amazing, showing the able-bodied how much they could learn about motivation, and discipline and stretching themselves, as well as reminding those disabled in various ways that some of them could aspire to more than that they were currently settling for. If ever there was a living example to every single individual in the UK of how not to give up, how to make the most of oneself, how to concentrate on what we can do rather than what we can't do, we had it. And thirdly, Inspire a Generation applied off the track too. I'm thinking of the thousands of volunteers who found that, you remember, distinctive red and purple uniform? They found it rather ridiculous at first, but it quickly turned into a badge of honour. And by their own admission, they were surprised at how much fun helping others was. And by the end of the Olympics, a lot of people were wishing that they too had volunteered. The obvious enjoyment of the games makers, as they were called, it rubbed off on everyone else. Enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. And the games did something that no one had expected. It made us feel good about ourselves and about our neighbours. It also showed us that we don't have to be a Mo Farah or a Jessica Ennis Hill to make our mark. We can achieve gold in our own way, in whatever field of community life suits us best. And not just once every four years, but in between and on ordinary days too. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Romain from Maidenhead Reform Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Thomas Harding, Walter Isolino, Hilary Stone. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Joe Craig and Denise Lester. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg.
You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.